Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. I am Chris Rawl. There is so much going on in the world of sports. The Stanley Cup playoffs and the NBA playoffs, they're both making my head explode. I'm going to be talking about it every week. I'm writing about it every Wednesday. You need to go and sign up for my newsletter. That will help calm my nerves. All you need to do is go to chrisrawl.com. Click on the subscribe button in the top right. I just dropped one earlier this week about how I could improve, me personally, how I could improve NBA refing, and I stand by that take. I don't say that as a joke. I genuinely do believe that if you sat me down as a consultant in about five minutes, I can improve the state of NBA refing. So again, if you want that delivered to your inbox every Wednesday, go and sign up for it. It's free. It's easy. It will help me out. Thank you. Now we move on to today's episode where I'm going to talk about what I believe to be the story of the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs, the ascent of Kel McCarr. I watch sports for a wide variety of reasons. Right at the top of the list is gambling. There are numbers coming out of my eyes and ears and nose and mouth. I can't even get enough of it. Every night I go home, I just got to make more bets and watch more games. It's a fantastic state of being. It's a really fun, enjoyable way to spend evening after evening after evening. Uh, I also watch sports because they make me feel that's an emotional tie that I have. My heart beats faster when I watch certain games. I could watch game five of Bucks Celtics, a fantastic basketball game. And in the fourth quarter, I got money out and I'm going, oh, this is just, this is amazing. I can watch the third period of game five of the Tampa Bay Lightning and Toronto Maple Leafs. 2-2 series. Toronto's got all these ghosts in their past. Tampa's back-to-back Stanley Cup champs. Incredible period of hockey that the Leafs end up coming out on top on an Austin Matthews goal. My heart's beating fast. I got money on the line, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Playoff overtime in the NHL. Spoken a little bit about it after game two of Colorado Nashville. You just, you can't beat it. There's nothing that will make you feel more if you are already invested in a sporting event than sudden death overtime in hockey. It is the very best thing to have on your television. I firmly maintain that. And again, there's there's more and more reasons. I'm sure that you, the listener, you have some that are going through your mind going, well, yeah, I like those or maybe I don't. But these are the reasons why I watch sports. Now, what I'm going to talk about on today's show is one very specific aspect of fandom, one that I really love. It's probably at the very top of the list. It's watching the ascension of a player whose ceiling appears undefined. That's its own thing. It's it's really incredible to watch somebody when they're young and go, oh man, what 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 is this player going to turn into? And then after a few years, they're getting better and better. And there's maybe a moment, maybe it's just a gradual feeling where you go, am I watching one of the best players ever within this sport? And that's taken to a whole other level. If that player is on your team, the very different state of fandom, rather than just watching Michael Jordan or Giannis Antetokounmpo right now with the Bucks, two players that, yeah, great basketball players. I enjoy watching them, but they're not on my team. It's different when the player whose ceiling appears undefined is on the team that you have followed all your life. Now, two players that I repeatedly reference on this show and just that I repeatedly reference in day-to-day life are LeBron James and Aaron Rodgers. They are my favorite basketball player. They are my favorite football player of all time. Okay. Um, and beyond just the incredible highlights that both of these players have accumulated throughout the course of their careers, there's something that's even more special to me. This is my own personal belief, but I think a lot of people follow suit. There's something even more special when you watch the entire evolution of a player from start to 
almost finished with both of these. I don't know how many more years each of them have left. It's not a lot. When their careers are done, I will have watched from start to finish. Uh, and Aaron Rodgers comes to mind as a person who checks all the boxes of what I love more than anything about fandom. Takes over for starting quarterback of the Green Bay Packers in 2008. My favorite team. So I watched growing up. Brett Favre, big fan, obviously. Rodgers comes in to take over. And Packers miss the playoffs. Okay, Rodgers looks good enough where I'm like, all right, okay, we got something. 2009, they make the playoffs. He has, it's, it's a moment that I was watching and thinking, huh, there's something going on with this guy. It was wild card round against Arizona at Arizona. And Rodgers just loses his mind. He's winging it all over the yard. A performance that now we know to be the norm for Aaron Rodgers. But at the time, it's his second season. And I'm just going, whoa, what is this? This is kind of incredible, right? They lose the game. Rodgers gets hit in overtime. Ball pops up. Arizona returns it for a touchdown to win the game. So I'm devastated there. But... I'm still getting a feeling of, all right, we got something to work with here. You know, in season three, Packers are beset by injuries. They're scraping to make the playoffs down the stretch. They have to win their last two against the Giants and the Bears. They do. They do. Now they're in the playoffs. They beat Mike Vick and the Falcons on the road in the wildcard round. And it sets up on the road against the number one seed Atlanta Falcons. This is January of 2011. For me, this was the moment where I'd watched, obviously, every single game up until this point. We're into the playoffs of season three. Still very young in this player's career. But the performance in this game was so spectacular. The stakes obviously being very high. And it spurred the Packers into a Super Bowl. They end up beating the Falcons, beating the Bears, and then beating the Steelers in Dallas in the Super Bowl. But in the moment, as I was watching this game, and especially once it had wrapped up, I just remember sitting there on my couch going, okay, I... I'm very excited for what the future holds, what the present holds as well, but I don't know what the ceiling of this player is. I, I want to read something that I wrote actually about this game because I wrote a big essay about Aaron Rodgers. If you haven't read it, you can read it on chrisroll.com. But there's a paragraph that specifically references this game that I think is pertinent to share in the context of this conversation. So here we go. This is from me. I'm plagiarizing myself. <laughs> To choose the finest performance of Aaron Rodgers' career is to choose a favorite child. Though, gun to my head, the divisional round versus the number one seed Atlanta Falcons is my pick. It was not a coming out party in the traditional sense, rather a moment of awakening. The beast fully arose from slumber, talent defying, then exceeding expectation. Rodgers toyed with the Falcons' defense. He evaded edge rushers with liquid ease, fired rockets brighter than the fluorescent indoor lights, a trickster from Legends of Old who honked defenders' noses, pulled bright silken kerchiefs from his trousers, and plucked footballs from behind the ears of children. His final numbers in a 48-21 Packers victory were immaculate. 31 for 36, 366 yards, three touchdowns passing and one touchdown rushing, zero turnovers. A performance so devastatingly revealing it felt blasphemous to try to quantify. End quote. So that was my feeling at the time. Just this, take a deep breath and let your imagination run wild, right? And I like, this is funny, me giving myself props. I like the words that I use. I chose them very carefully and thought about them for a while about the coming out party. Because the traditional coming out party, it's years and years and years. And you see it, this person goes from this 19-year-old to this 28-year-old. And you see over the course of a, a larger period of time, 
the evolution of a player. This was a shorter span. It was three years, which within football, okay, you'll see that sometimes, but there's usually more of a moment. There's less games uh, and just sometimes there's something that stands out so intensely that you go, all right, I'm going to have to reassess all of my prior opinions about this player. The moment of awakening, right? That was Rodgers in this game, just throwing laser beams all over the yard, juking out everybody. LeBron kind of had a similar thing for me as well. LeBron, not on my favorite team, um, but he came to the league and I was just, for whatever reason, I gravitated towards him watching the high school games at Akron St. Vincent St. Mary's high school that he played on. They show him on ESPN, ESPN2 at the time. There's so much hoopla around him, so I'm watching him. And I go, yeah, this is, okay, <laughs> who's this guy? This is sweet. Playing a bunch of dudes in high school that look like me, 5'8", 150 pounds, and just crushing them. He's drafted first overall by his hometown team. It's a cool story. So I'm going, all right, yeah, let's, let's see what all the hullabaloo is about. And LeBron's first game, he played the Sacramento Kings. So I'm tuning in because I really liked Sacramento at the time. Very fun basketball team. One of the best in the league. And they're playing LeBron. And I vividly remember in this game, LeBron steps on the court plays an incredibly respectable basketball game. He's got nobody on his team. He's playing one of the best teams. And he just looks like, oh, this is a high-level NBA player right now, day one. Has not played anybody except for a bunch of Chris Rawls in high school. And now he's against the best athletes in the world. And he looks like he belongs. So that's the, the brief window at the time of, okay, something special is here. What it is, I mean, remains to be determined. And for me, the moment, because I obviously followed LeBron's career as closely as I followed Aaron Rodgers. It was a couple years later, into his fourth season, I believe. And the Cavaliers were in the playoffs. They were in the Eastern Conference Finals. They were playing against the Detroit Pistons. It was game five of the Eastern Conference Finals. Sears was tied 2-2 on the road at Detroit. Detroit, great basketball team at the time. They had won an NBA championship a couple years prior. They had lost in the NBA Finals to the Spurs in game seven as well. Just one of the best basketball teams at the time. LeBron is just surrounded by a bunch of Chris Rawls on his team. <laughs> Unfortunately, he went to the NBA and the people he was playing against were now on his team. Zydrunas Ilgoskis and Booby Gibson and just a bunch of bums. And on the road in this game that LeBron is going to have to do everything if Cleveland even has a chance, he does. They end up winning in double overtime. And in that game, LeBron scores the last 25 points. It's one of the most... Transcendent performances I've ever watched in a basketball game. And I remember taking a deep breath after that night. Uh, when the final buzzer sounds and Cleveland celebrating, they go on to clinch the series in game six at home and then just get swamped by San Antonio because they looked around and said, oh, it's just LeBron and nobody. Let's just shut down LeBron. And they did because LeBron was young at the time. And also it's an impossible ask to say one player beat a really incredible team, which the Spurs are. But after that game, I take the deep breath and I go, okay. I would say for me, it was the first time that I stepped back and truly just thought, all right, I don't, I don't know what this player can grow into. The ceiling, again, is undefined. Now we know that it's one of the two best basketball players in the history of the sport. Rodgers, same kind of thing. My opinion of him is probably higher than you, but even people who do not like him as a player would agree that, yeah, this is one of the best quarterbacks who's ever played the game. Where I rank him is up for debate. I'm going to have him a lot higher on the list than you, but at worst, we're talking about one of the six best quarterbacks in the history of the sport, okay? That same time period, actually a little bit before, this is a decade or so, 
and beyond. Uh, there's one other player who is not held in the same esteem as those two, who is my favorite hockey player ever, Peter Forsberg. A lot of you probably do not know who that is because a lot of people don't follow the sport and he's been gone for a lot of years. But Peter Forsberg was a very unique case. The only thing that could ever hold him back were injuries. And there were a bunch. That's what ends up ending his career. He's just having surgery on his ankles and his hips and everything was just repaired, 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 repaired. But when Peter Forsberg was on the ice for the Colorado Avalanche, it was an incredible blend of skill and violence. Two things that were just magnetic for me at the time. It's what attracted me to the sport. The Avalanche moved to Denver. They start showing those games. Peter Forsberg is the athlete who immediately stood out to me. I watched him and I go, what? I don't know a lot about the sport. I don't know what icing is. I don't know what offsides is. I'm going to have to learn a lot of these rules, but who is this guy that's skating around with the puck on his stick and somebody tries to take it and he just blasts him to the ground. Then he threads a cross ice pass through four defenders and somebody's tapping in a goal and I'm sitting there going, well, I don't know a lot about hockey, but that was damn cool. So I learned more about sport and now I'm watching the avalanche teams of, of your that were just stocked to the brim with incredible talent beyond Forsberg because he's playing alongside multiple players. Joe Sackick, Patrick Waugh, Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame, a couple seasons of Ray Bork and Rob Blake on the back end, Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame. I mean, we're talking about just an incredible collection of talent. They win two Stanley Cups and just at the time, I didn't understand how special of an accumulation of talent the Avalanche had. I was just young and I watched hockey and I thought it was fun. And I'm growing older and I'm going, oh, well, that was a really special experience to be a part of because I was able to watch all of those Hall of Fame players. And right at the center of it for me was Forsberg, who after each game or playoff series, I would just go, oh, imagine if this guy was just healthier. What could he be? He'd be one of the greatest players in the history of the sport. Now, there are people who share that opinion of Forsberg in addition to me that watched his career. It's one of the ones that kind of gets lost by the wayside and you go, we just had a different body. Imagine the statistics and just the things he could have accumulated throughout 20 years rather than just injuries and stuff backing him up and he's still winning an MVP and he's still just balling out every time the avalanche from the playoffs. He's one of the best big game players I've ever watched in my life. But Peter Forsberg's always running through my mind as one of these athletes that I was just blessed to be able to watch on my team. Now I'm thinking of that because we're back to that point and I'm much more cognizant of how incredible it is to have a player ascending on your team very early on in their career. And we're watching that right now. Kel McCarr, who is age 23, who I, alongside a lot of other people, are struggling to be, calculate his ceiling. Uh, as far as individual players are concerned, Kel McCarr is the story of the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs in 2022. That is pretty incredible because he shares a team with Nathan McKinnon. Nathan McKinnon in the playoffs, I would always say, he is as good. I would take him up against anybody in hockey. There's some extra gear he finds and the violence and ferociousness he plays offensively. He brings onto the defensive end. So he's chasing people down on the back check. He's just slapping the puck away and, and starting things up ice. He's doing everything that I want a hockey player to do. And with that guy doing all of those things through four games against Nashville, Kel McCarr was the story to the point where the series ends and the avalanche sweep Nashville. And now they're waiting for the winner of St. Louis and Minnesota and Nathan McKinnon in a press conference, Nathan McKinnon, who does not hand out praise lightly. This is a dude who, if you reach for a donut, he's going to slap your hand. Doesn't even matter if you're on his team. 
If you are struggling, he's going to make you stand there and practice and shoot pucks on a net while everybody watches just to humiliate you and let you know this is not acceptable behavior. He comes from the Michael Jordan School of Leadership, which is just, I demand all these things for myself, so it's a reasonable ask to demand everything from you. And everybody else is going, but you're a psychopath. You do, you do psychopathic things to yourself to try and win hockey games. I love it on the avalanche because I just think the team takes on that persona of just, all right, we're willing to do anything that we need to do to win. On <laughs> This guy is sitting there in a press conference after round one, and he's going, you know, honestly, Makar, I think, might be the best player in the world right now, which I don't think Nathan McKinnon says lightly. I don't think he's sitting there blowing smoke up Makar's ass. I think he just watched a series that I watched and went, <laughs> I mean, this is an incredible player, and who knows where his career is headed. Makar scores 10 points through those four games. That's an NHL record for a defenseman. Never in the history of the sport has an NHL defenseman through the first four games of the playoffs scored 10 points. On the opposite end of the ice in this series was Or Roman Yossi, who is probably going to win the Norris Trophy for the best defenseman in the regular season, something I argued vehemently about again and again throughout the entire 82 games and now even more after watching in the playoffs. Yes, the teams are unequal, but if you just looked at the individual performances, there's nobody on planet Earth who would think that Roman Yossi is better than Kel McCarr. I mean, every game there was something just, actually not something, every game there were a handful of things that my jaw's hitting the floor. Again and again and again and again. I'm talking all four games. Go back and watch his goal from game one. Just quintessential Kel McCarr, highlight reel. This is, if it's any other player, it's the highlight goal of their entire career. And for Kel McCarr, it's another day in the office. Game two, he scores the overtime game winner. That's not even the story for me. That was just, it's the best game I've ever watched a defenseman play. He was everywhere. He was on the defensive end. He was on the offensive end. He was somehow in the neutral zone. He was eight players at once. Game three was the casual brilliance of Makar, which sometimes I will lose sight of because he just does, does so many spectacular things that a game like game three where he's just, nope, I'm rock solid and I'm going to start the breakout and I'm going to play sound defense and I'm going to direct the power play. A power play that in that game was just lights out. I believe they scored four power play goals in that game, if I'm not mistaken. And you get to the end of the night and you're like, huh, Kel McCarr like doesn't have the, the highlight snippet that you can go and put on NHL.com, but this game was immaculate. It was perfect. And then game four, the closeout game, it's more stupefying stuff from him. You can pick the goal, which is just him unscreened at the top of the, between the two face-off circles, just ripping a wrister that seems like it's 300 miles an hour. And Connor Ingram doesn't even know what hit him. Or you could pick the game-winning assist, which is just another quintessential McCarr play. The shimmy shake to squeeze between the boards and the defender. And then an incredible pass that Roman Yossi is standing there going, oh, just watching it go by because he doesn't even know that somebody wants to throw that pass. And Connor Ingram's not in position because, again, nobody expects a pass to be coming from the opposite corner straight through the crease to Valeri Nechuskin, who's now smashing it into an empty net for the game-winning goal. Now, that's the highlight real stuff, but I would snip out a specific shift from that game to point to and say, Makar, there's the casual stuff combined with the high-level stuff combined with the electric stuff, and I don't even know how to process it sometimes because there's a nearly two-minute shift during the course of that game where Makar springs himself for a breakaway. Yes, a defenseman is now somehow behind the defense and walking in alone on Connor Ingram. Full-fledged breakaway. Tries to slide at five hole. Ingram makes a nice save. Okay, great. This is right near the end of the shift. Again, nearly two minutes of ice time that 
camel cars there running wind sprints on the ice. And I wouldn't fault him if it was just like, all right, I got to take a moment and just either hurry and try to get off the ice and know that it might be a little awkward change and they could get a chance out of it, or just kind of coast down and trust my teammates to make up for the fact that I'm going to be behind the play. And instead, Nashville gets the puck immediately into the Colorado zone on the rush, and Philip Forsberg's just getting blasted behind the net. And I'm going, who did, that was a great play, who was that? And then Kel McCarr's the one who's skating off of Philip Forsberg, who's now looking around going, how did I just get smashed by this guy who had a breakaway on the entire opposite end of the ice and is at the end of a two-minute shift? I watched a lot of hockey since 1996. That is 26 years now of hockey. That's a long time, actually. Watch a lot of hockey. And I don't say this as hyperbole. And I don't believe I am being a creature of the moment because I've watched every single benchmark of Makar's career through 3.1 seasons. And I feel very confident in my own assessment of this. And I'll say I've never watched somebody play hockey like Kel Makar. Never watched somebody play hockey like he's currently playing. And I keep having moments after every game where I sit back and I take that breath and I go, I don't know how to put a cap on this dude's ceiling. I just don't. Now, you might hear that and go, well, Chris, he's going a little overboard because he's a huge Avalanche fan and he wants Stanley Cup way bad and he's kind of trying to will us into existence. And maybe there's a sliver of truth to that, but let's maybe go and ask Paul Coffey, one of the best defensemen in the history of the NHL. He won four Stanley Cups with the Edmonton Oilers. He won three Norris trophies as the best defenseman in hockey. Again, one of the very best ever to play that position. And he talked to Peter Baugh of The Athletic, who is the Avalanche beat writer there, about Kill McCarr specifically. He had a wide-ranging interview, but there are three lines that I pulled out because I'm just lapping up this McCarr stuff like a dog in his milk bowl. Dogs (laughs) eat milk, I think. (laughs) But there are three quotes that... Paul Coffey had about Makar that really, they were chicken soup for the soul. First one, you can encourage hockey sense, but you cannot teach it. The exciting part for Makar is the best is yet to come. Second quote, there's no such thing as doing the little things as a defenseman because those are big things. And the third quote, His vision is as good as anybody I've seen. His first two steps on the opposing blue line and getting away from guys. I've never seen anything like it. So Paul Coffey is much more knowledgeable about this sport than I am and has an infinitely better understanding of not only what to look for in a player, but just a comprehension of what it takes to play this specific position. So when he says, this is crazy stuff and the best is yet to come, that mirrors what I'm feeling and makes me feel a whole hell of a lot better. Rather than being Kel McCarr fanboy over here, I'm going, okay, there's a lot of other people with much more knowledge about this sport than I who are saying similar things. That final quote is the thing that I really keep circling around, the, the vulture picking at the carcass. I've never seen anything like it because I've said that probably, <laughs> I, I couldn't give you a number, an infinite amount of times in the last three years and change. Dating back to the very first time that this dude stepped on the ice in an avalanche uniform. It's a moment that I continue to revisit. I've talked about it on this show. I want to talk about it again today. I will probably talk about it again later because I think it is just such an incredible moment at the time. And with more context, it's making more sense. And it's 
starting to crystallize as one of the moments in my hockey watching fandom where I go, it's going to be really hard to beat what that moment represents for a Colorado Avalanche fan. It's game three of the 2019 playoffs. The Calgary Flames, the number one seed on the road against the Colorado Avalanche in a 1-1 series. And nothing about this game made sense in the moment. Nothing, nothing, nothing. It was just, I think, a collective willing by the Avalanche fan base of just, we need something good to happen. There's been a lot of lean years over a decade post Sackick and Forsberg and Wath where this team has just been really bad. And this is the first year that there was just a blip. The last year or the year prior, they'd made the playoffs, but just got bashed by Nashville. That's fine. Just getting there was gravy. This was the first year that there seemed like there was a little more something to work with. You saw McKinnon take that step to where, okay, this is an actual superstar center. We have one of the most important things you actually need. Now, how can we flush this out? You see Rannon take another step as a winger. You go, okay. Now, the Avalanche fan base, I, I say this as an Avalanche fan, game three was just, it was years and years and years of pent-up frustration that I was just sitting there getting ready for the game going, I need something good to happen in this game so bad I can't even describe it. One of those things of fandom that other sports fans will hear and go, I, I know that feeling. This is one of those games for me. I'll tell you about this. And people who don't follow sports go, that sounds like an insane person. What are you even talking about? And that's kind of true. But in the end, we're all insane. So going into this game, the Avalanche, they played well in game one. They kind of got goalied. That's fine. They lost. Game two, tight, hard fought. McKinnon scores an incredible overtime winner. So now the Avs, they, they've stolen home ice. They're still big underdogs, but all right, you know. Uh, Avalanche fans are going to be rocking the place. And, oh, there's going to be a, an interesting, really tiny subplot to all of this, just years and years of pent-up frustration for Avs. Kel McCarr is going to be making his NHL debut in a game of this magnitude. Again, like, it's the biggest game in Colorado hockey since 2014 when they played in the playoffs that year and lost in Game 7 against Minnesota. So we're talking five years. And now I'm going, all right, this is this is what we've all been waiting for. This team is ready to try and, and make the next step. And Kale McCarr, two days prior, <laughs> he's playing the NCAA title game against, or I can't remember who he's playing against, but he's playing for Massachusetts. They lose. As soon as that game's over, he can sign a professional contract with Colorado. He does. It was on a Saturday night. I remember this. And Colorado game was on a Monday. So he finishes out that game. We hear Sunday morning. Okay. He signed a contract. He's on a plane to Denver. <laughs> Monday morning, we hear he's in the lineup. And everything that I know about hockey says that it is impossible, it is impossible for a rookie defenseman to jump into this situation and do anything but soil his trousers. The demands of the position are too high, period. You see rookie defensemen take years and years and years to just come to some level of respectability. That is the, that's the career arc for the vast majority of young defensemen. Much less you're being thrown into Game three of a tied playoff series on home ice in front of a fan base that is just thirsting for anything to go right. Okay. I mean, I get goosebumps talking about this because of what it represented in the moment. And especially what I'm starting to understand it represents in present day. In the moment, it was just Colorado's having a meaningful hockey moment. That means a whole hell of a lot for a team that just didn't have any for years and years and years, much less what occurred, which was the first sign of things to come that will start defying comprehension again and again and again and again, right? 
because in that game, you know, I've set the stage and just from the opening face off, the abs are just, they're a literal avalanche. They're like embodying what fans want. I, I think they wanted it obviously even more because they sensed something. I think McKinnon was right at the forefront of that. He'd had a lot of lean years with Colorado. A lot of people were pointing at him and saying, well, why something's got to be wrong with him. If this avalanche team is just always in the lottery, what's going on this guy? Is he going to be a superstar center ever? And they were just, they were in Calgary zone again, 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 wave after wave after wave. So they score once, they score twice and we're getting to the end of the first period and the place is going ballistic and I'm at home going, all right, Colorado's having a moment. Like we got to keep it coming. Don't let up. And suddenly they're on the rush and suddenly Kelmacar is jumping into the play and I'm going, what in the hell is this guy doing? Why is this rookie defenseman jumping into the rush? I don't even, what are we talking about? And suddenly the puck's in the back of the net. And he's celebrating and I'm standing up, like grabbing my head going, is, did, was that a goal from Kel McCarr? And everybody's running over and the place is going ballistic and it's 3-0 and they're going and grabbing the puck because it's the first goal in the career of Kel McCarr. And it's his first game and it's the first period. And literally two days prior, he was a collegiate player. So again, at the time, nothing about it made sense. And bit by bit by bit by bit, it starts to make a little bit more sense, a little bit more sense. Just in that game. So I went back and looked at the, the advanced stats of this game. And I looked at the box score because I just wanted to jog my memory of some of this stuff. And McCarr in that game played 14 minutes. That was his time on ice total, which was kind of shocking in the moment. It's not a lot of time, but I was just like, I expect him to play six minutes, you know, just dip your toe in the water. And instead he's playing 14 minutes in this high leverage game, which Colorado wins. So now they're up two one. And now we have game four, the next biggest game. After you play the biggest game, it's always the next is the biggest. The next is the biggest. So now they're going, we have to win this game because if we lose, now it's a 2-2 series going back to Calgary. We do not want that. And I think Jared Bednar, the coach of the Avalanche, he just, he knew. Hockey coaches, they're very apprehensive to put any young player into any situation in high leverage moments. It's just the nature of the sports. These crusty old ballers that really are mistrustful of a young player's ability to not only hold up physically, but especially mentally in a sport that is just lightning fast. And instead, his time on ice jumps from 14 minutes in game three to 20 in game four. Just, that's okay. You're a core defenseman right now. You're playing 20 minutes tonight. Your second game in an NHL uniform. Four days earlier, you were playing collegiate hockey. And now Jared Bednar's going, you're playing second pair, full minute load, 20 minutes. And Colorado goes to overtime and Miko Rantanen Slaps home an overtime winner, and I'm losing my mind, and the Avs closed out in game five. They take San Jose to the brink of elimination the next round. Incredible Sharks team. The Avalanche losing game seven by one goal in a game that they had a very unfortunate overturn of a goal that still to this day I'm very bitter about. They called the Gabe Landis cog offsides, and I do not believe that was the case. However, what was occurring at this time is, okay, you're starting to see more A from this Avalanche team. There's core pieces that you're starting to get a better understanding of and you're starting to see how the pieces fit your bednar starting to understand that as a coach okay i can rely a little bit more upon kill McCarr specifically this is one of the pieces bit by bit by bit over the ensuing years he plays 10 games his first 10 games are all nhl playoff games those last three games against calgary and seven games against san jose and then he's getting regular season 2020 2021 2022 playoffs each of those years and we're just starting to accumulate so much information on how special this dude is. And much like Paul Coffey, I think a lot of us are sitting here going, I think the best is yet to come, which is insane 
when you think about what is occurring. Go back and watch the overtime game-winning goal against Chicago from this regular season. It's, it's on the short list of the best goals I've ever seen in my entire life. If you haven't watched it yet, go and YouTube it. Overtime game-winner, Kale McCarr, Chicago Blackhawks. He put poor Kirby Doc in a blender, like literally in a blender. He was just spinning on ice going, what? How did that guy who was trying to skate the puck out of the zone, how was he suddenly going the other way without even stopping? It was like he appeared and disappeared. And then Marc-Andre Fleury's in net and just Kelmacar stick handles 52 times, it seems like. Ooh, left, right, left, right, left. And then he suddenly backhands over his shoulder when there's no room anywhere. And Kelmacar, who just usually is as cool as can be, he has for him what amounts to absolute insane celebration, which is just <laughs> a fist pump and, and an acknowledgement that, yeah, that was cool as hell. And a lot of people are going to watch this again and again. So I might as well give it a little bit of flair at the end. <laughs> Something he doesn't normally do. You watch something like that and you go, so that this the best is yet to come? What, what are we even talking about? But I do believe that to be true because I'm watching Kel McCarr's career as closely as I've watched Aaron Rodgers or LeBron James. And much like those players, specifically, I, I like to reference LeBron. With McCarr, you're starting to see his game flush out over the last 3.1 years. I personally have witnessed that. And it's still growing, which is the part that is just ugh, making me giddy. And, and I think for a lot of other fans, they either feel the same way or they're going, this is terrifying. What This guy's going to get better. What are we talking about? You're starting to see this year specifically, you're seeing this increased confidence and willingness to shoot the puck, period. I think he's had to grow into that. The shot has always existed, but I just think there's a learning curve of understanding, oh, my shot is as good as anybody's on this team that has an incredible collection of shots. I mean, McKinnon, Rantanen, Burakovsky, we're talking about some of the highest level shooters in the sport. And Makar is going, oh, well, yeah, I, I have just a good of a shot as any of these people. Slapper, wrister, snapshot, doesn't matter. I mean, all this stuff. You're seeing specifically this year, a huge increase in penalty killing workload. Just the trust of Bednar and the willingness of Makar to go, oh, okay. A lot of people think that you can't kill penalties because you have not in the past. That's untrue, as it turns out. Because now you're killing over two minutes of penalties a night on the first defensive pairing, you and Devontae's, a pairing that traditionally doesn't make a lot of sense as a penalty-killing duo. They seem like they're these transition players who are quick, and they're not necessarily going to go and just barrel around in the front of the net. And what we're understanding is, well, these are two of the most talented players with their sticks and their understanding of how to get in passing lanes. And Kel McCarr can be just as physical as anybody. Go and ask Jordan Stahl earlier this season in a Carolina game when he's trying to bring into the zone and McCarr takes one step and he's in his chest and Jordan stalls out for the rest of the night. You can go and watch clips on YouTube of Kel McCarr who looks like he's five years old and do not mistake that for him being lenient with physicality because he crushes people. So now he's penalty killing more. He's crushing people. He's shooting more. He's understanding how to conduct the power play. There's been, in my opinion, uh, a passing of the torch a little bit or how I think the Avalanche as a power play unit is at their very best. It's always run through McKinnon in the past, and for good reason. Again, this is one of the best players in the sport. But this year, it's dawned on me, and especially as the year has gone on, I want the puck on Makar's stick as the person who is setting up what is happening. I want him to be the conductor. I want him to either set up Rantanen on one side or McKinnon on or one side. I want him walking the blue line. I want him creating space in a way that only he can, where he's manipulating the defense in front of him. And if they come a little bit too much this way, then the pass is going this way. If they're coming a little bit too much that way, the pass is going the other way. If they get a little too much out of position, 
He's sending a putt to the neck and he's going to have Nazem Kadri and Gabe Landeskog there ready to deflect stuff or bang home rebounds. Or it could just go in cleanly because that's what kind of a shot Kel McCarr has. All of this stuff, it's, it's kind of building and building and building upon one. Building, building, building. And I think it's not a culmination, but it's kind of reaching this crescendo of, I think it's downing on him that he is the baddest dude on the ice. I think that's its own thing entirely. I think all of us deep down, like we just feel an imposter syndrome with whatever we do, even things that we're good at. I think that, you know, we, we can acknowledge it like, oh yeah, I'm good at doing this specific thing. But deep down, when you compare yourself to other people that are good at it, you go, oh, well, that person's really good. And, and am I as good as that? I think that's just human nature, right? And I think there's that growth arc within every athlete, no matter how good you are, there's always a little piece of you that's just, you have to understand at some point that has to dawn on you specifically that, oh, no, 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 no. These are not my peers. I am the best in the world and I'm going to showcase that every single night. I'm going to do all the things that I know that I can do at the highest level again and again and again because I am the baddest dude on the ice. Reminds me a lot of the early days of LeBron. Just how he compounded his game. Oh, I got to add a jump jump shot. I have to get better at that. We see it. We see it. I got to get better at free throws. We see it. I got to add a three-pointer. We see that. I mean, he's really good at those things now. I got to add a post game. I always want, you know, earlier on in the career, I just want to run a bunch of high pick and rolls over and over and over and over and over. But I got to get better in the post. I got to go and learn footwork. I got to go and learn how to score there. I got to learn how to pass out of this. We saw that as the years went on. That kind of reaches its own crescendo in 2012, in my opinion, the finals that year against Oklahoma City. When like the skill that was on display more than anything from LeBron, again, a dude who had every tool in the tool bag at that point in time, was passing out of the post. He just dissected Oklahoma City. They would get it down to him and Oklahoma City was terrified for obvious reasons. It's the best player in the world at the time who understood he was the best player on the court and was leaning into it. And now he's zipping a pass cross court over here to Shane Batty and he's finding Chris Bosh out of a double team at the rim for a dunk. And now he's throwing these insane bounce passes, just whipping it here, over there, over there. That's how the series was won in five games from Miami. It wasn't LeBron scoring 50 a night. He can do that. We've seen that happen. But it was just this comprehension of, no, 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 I'm the best player in basketball, and whatever opportunity presents itself, I know I have the skill to take advantage of it. That's the feeling that I'm starting to get. Maybe it doesn't ascend to that level. Maybe it's a Peter Forsberg thing where in 10 years, we're sitting there looking at it and going, oh, this guy had incredible talent and there were moments where it showed, but for whatever reason, maybe it didn't necessarily ascend to the level that we thought it was going to get to. Or maybe, I mean, it it could be just, we're starting to watch the blossoming of an all-time defenseman. It's really, really incredible to be a part of this. I can't stress this enough. Outside of Colorado's chances of winning the cup this year, which I'm sick about and just, it's keeping me up at nights. <laughs> I, on the positive side of things, I, I keep pinching myself about this Makar stuff because you get very, very few opportunities for something like this on your own team. You just do. I mean, I can count on one hand the amount of times it's happened in my lifetime. I'm 36 years old. And now we're seeing, all right, McKinnon, he's, he's an incredible player. Every step of his career has been an incredible joy to watch. Now we're getting that combined with Kel McCarr. And it's like a 20-year circle almost. Seems too good to be true, but I keep pinching myself and I'm going, oh, it it is. It's an alternate version of what Avs fans had with Sakik and Forsberg. Four very different players, but the concept behind it is the same. It's two of the best players in the sport together, um, strengthening one another. One who's in kind of the middle of their prime, that was Sakik at the time, 
McKinnon right now. The other one, the, the, the blossoming start on the ascent, that was Forsberg, years younger than Sakic. And then what we're seeing with Makar right now, uh, dating back to game three, 2019. And now to present day where they're waiting for the winner of the Wild and the Blues. Maybe the Avs keep winning, maybe they don't. But I'm sitting here thinking, this is an incredible opportunity. The Avs have this dude locked under contract for years and years and years. <laughs> it's just, it's a gift that you do not get very often. This is why you are willing to sit through a decade of putrid hockey. This is why you are willing to sit through the 2017 season when Colorado was dead last in the NHL. It was the worst non-expansion season since I have been alive. Literally one of the worst seasons in the history of hockey for a non-expansion team. And I remember that season. I go through it and I'm watching it. It's been years since the Avalanche have been good. And it's just rock bottom. They are so bad. They're starting Calvin Pickard every night. <laughs> it was just, it was a train wreck of a season. And I'm wanting to bash my head against the wall going, why, why, why do you even watch this? And there were still little things that I go, I don't know why McKinnon's struggling. And I don't know why, okay, this Rantan guy, like may, maybe we got some, I don't know. Just give me something to look at, something to hold on to, something to dream of a better future. There were not a lot of moments there. McKinnon was just the one for me where I was like, I've seen him be good before. I don't know what's going on this season. Maybe the stench of this team is too much. Maybe it's going to derail his career. Maybe it's just for whatever reason, he's not playing that good this season. At least at the end of the year, the abs, they're sitting there. Worst team, but they have the best lottery odds at least. Okay, let's let's grab the tiny little life preserver. You know, we're floating in the center of the ocean. It's going to take 100 years to float back to a shore on either side. But at least we got the life preserver. Best lottery odds. Maybe we can get the number one pick. At worst, at worst, how the lottery works is at worst, the Colorado Avalanche could fall to four. So the 2017 season ends. I say, finally, I can just think about anything but this. And now I can start paying attention to draft prospects. That's funner. Lottery happens. And who comes up at number four? Colorado Avalanche. <laughs> and I go, this figures. This is just, this is my life in hockey at this point in time. After the worst season, they fall to the worst lottery pick they can possibly get. I'm even more depressed about the state of events. I go, I don't know why I follow this. This is just, this is the emotional component of sports that you just, for whatever reason, you wish you could sever, but you can't. So I'm there and I'm going, oh, whatever. Who cares? Whatever. Wake me up when the season begins. And that draft comes and, you know, Nico Hersher is off the board and then three picks coming around and the stars, they need a defenseman. They draft Miro Haskinen. Who's a good NHL player in his own right. Very, very high level defenseman. And the Avs, they're coming on the clock at number four. And just <laughs> a competitive team seems eons away. I cannot stress this enough. And they go up. They draft a defenseman from UMass. His name's Kel McCart. So I don't know anything about this at the time. I'm paying attention to draft prospects. And I go, okay, this guy he looks pretty good. Yeah, sweet. He wants to go back to college for an extra year. I'm going, just come and play. The Avs need anybody to play. I don't know if it's good or bad. Just throw anybody in the lineup that gives me a reason to watch. But for whatever reason, McCarr goes, nope, I want to go back to UMass. UMass, who's been an atrocious hockey team for years and years and years and years. For whatever reason, McCarr chooses them. And then 2019 happens, and they're one of the best teams in the sport. And Kel McCarr wins the Hobie Baker Award as best player in collegiate hockey. And I'm watching these college highlight reels of Makar just doing Makar stuff. And I'm salivating going, oh baby, this is sweet. I mean, there's no way he can do this in the NHL because it's the NHL, but like 
he's blasting people. He's running them over. He's going end to end on rushes and scoring. He's scoring overtime winners. He can't do this in the NHL, but there's something to work with. That's all I'm thinking. And his season ends on a Saturday night. And two days later, he's in the avalanche lineup and he's scoring a goal in the first period of his game. Very first game in an NHL uniform. This is why you follow a sport. This is why you follow hockey. This is why you're a fan of a team. This is why you and I are willing to sit through a decade of futility or even more. It's for a chance like this. That a great series of events occurs and you get a player like Kelmacar. And you watch these moments night after night. The goal in game three, first period. Him skating circles around the Dallas Stars in the 2020 playoffs when the abs are down everybody and he's got to play 100 minutes a night. Overtime winner against Kirby Doc earlier this year. Everything he did in the first round against Nashville. Stuff that he's going to do that we do not know about yet. That's It's for this chance to see all that. To get a player like that, to watch him explode every night on your team. It's a chance you very rarely get in life and be able to kick back after all of these things. Lean back, put your hands behind your head and just say again and again and again, I've never seen anything like it. Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawls Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. Sports are incredible. This has been a very, very therapeutic episode for me and a great reminder of why I like following this stuff. Uh, It's just, when it's good, it's good. Um, I write a newsletter every Wednesday morning where I share similar sentiments. Sometimes they are joking, sometimes they are not. Sometimes it's a combination of those things. It's free. You should go and sign up for it if you have not already. Uh, Go to chrisrawl.com. Click on the subscribe button in the top right corner. Put your email in. And on Wednesday morning, you're going to get something. Something that'll just send a shiver down your spine. So thank you for listening to the show today. Um, Enjoy the weekend in sports. I'll be back on Tuesday to talk about something new. Uh, Thanks again.